0: Hi, I'm Candace Huber, and welcome to the Writers' Forum. I am here with Daniel Jose Older.
1: Hello. Hey, hey, hey. It's great to be here.
0: And Daniel is the New York Times bestselling author of the middle-grade historical fantasy series, Dactyl Hill Squad, the Bone Street Rumba urban fantasy series, Star Wars Last Shot... And the award-winning young adult series, The Shadow Shaper Cipher, which won the International Latino Book Award and was shortlisted for the Kirkus Prize in Young Readers Literature, the Andre Norton Award, the Locus, the Mythopoic, is that how you I say
1: that? I think it's poetic, but okay. no, nobody Mythopo-ic knows, so right, it, it no gives knows. everybody pause. Great. Yeah.
0: And named one of Esquire's 80 books every person should read. Thank you for being here. I
1: was going <laughs> to do my own sound effects when people are reading my bio.
0: Amazing. <clears throat> I loved it. <sighs> Okay. I'm I'm good. So So you have actually written and it's in your bio for a bunch of different age groups. Like you've written books for adults and for teens and now for middle grade. So how is your writing different or is it? Is it based on which (laughs) age you're
1: writing for? Um you know. No swears in six.
0: (laughs) Wait, (laughs) am I allowed to say that?
1: Yes. Um, Well, no. Um, I I think, honestly, for me, uh, why specifically? Let's start with that, right? Young adult, I I always have a working definition of of young adult, which means that the main character is an adolescent, and that the, the primary crisis of the book revolves around them having to take an active step forward into adulthood. And if we kind of start from there, that means that everything... That's not that is either adult or or younger than that, right? <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um and, and it, that simplifies it to me because otherwise we get into the very murky territory of like, well, is this book which is supposed to be for adults but has a teenage protagonist, is it YA? To me, yeah, it is. Like maybe it wasn't marketed that way, but again, if the story is about the character growing up on some level, then it's a YA you will deal, you know, like yeah. um and, and that's just what it is. I, I understand there's marketing categories and those do matter for marketing. But when I'm sitting down at the page, what matters is who am I writing to and what is this book about, and that's where it is. So beyond that, it's it's a question of rhythm, I think. But also, you're always every age group has you know a whole variety of rhythms within it. Um, so it's really a matter of what the author themselves um, is tapping into. So when I when I sat down to write middle grade, I knew that I was talking to and talking from ten year old me, and I was a very fast-paced child. And I enjoyed <laughs> running around and riding on imaginary monsters. And so that's the book that I wrote for 10-year-old me.
0: That makes a lot of sense if anyone has read Dr. Hill Squad, which if you haven't, you should. It was really awesome. Thank you. And it was very fast-paced. It's a lot of action and stuff. And I was reading and I was like, this makes 10-year-old me so happy. And
1: that's the, <laughs> like, the point. Well, right? that's who I was writing to. <laughs> Having said that, there's of course 10-year-old other folks who are, you know, and I love that middle grade encompasses like very slow-moving books. You know, or slow and fast isn't even necessarily the right way to describe it, but books that are much more emotionally focused Mm -hmm. and, and then books that are action focused and there's everything in between.
0: Right. I was definitely an action-y kid. (laughs) So, um, so what made you decide? So Dactyl Hill Squad is a, your first middle grade book. So what made you go ahead?
1: Well, it's actually not the first one I wrote. I wrote, no one knows this, but I wrote a middle grade called Flood City in 2011. And eventually, over, I, and I couldn't do anything with it for a while. I tried to sell it; I couldn't for a while. And then eventually, I actually did sell it to Scholastic, and they were about to put it out. But then I sent them the Dactyl Hill proposal, and we all got so excited about Dactyl Hill that we ended up pushing Flood City out like ahead. So now there's a middle grade that will one day drop from me that you actually wrote that I wrote first. a while back. Oh. That's a future sci-fi post-flood apocalypse.
0: Well, Um, that's exciting. Fantasy story
1: that's really (laughs) exciting with lots of kids flying around on jet boots and and, and monsters and things. And so there's that. I just wanted to throw that out there because it's sort of hidden trivia. Yeah, I didn't know that. that That's really cool. That's an exclusive for
0: you. (laughs) So what made you decide to write middle grade? Is there anything in particular, like you wrote YA in adult?
1: Right. You know, the story itself sort of dictates that. And 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 once I really realized that I was going to write about the Civil War and dinosaurs, it sort of just wanted to be a middle grade. Having said that, I think you could write an adult book about the Civil War and dinosaurs or YA, but this story really wanted to be middle grade. And probably that stems back to one of the seeds of the book, which was that I was doing research for a rock opera, actually, um, about New York history and race relations in New York and things like that, racism in New York, things like that. And um, I was studying the colored orphan asylum, which is the central, you know, location in, in Dactyl Hill Squad. And I came along this upon this paragraph about a group of sisters who were mysteriously dropped off at the orphanage from Cuba and then scooped up and taken away a couple months later, never to be heard from again. Wow. And they were kind of lost to history. And I thought that moment was so profound for me because I'm Cuban. And it was this moment of like, yeah, I have a lot different between myself and those girls. But it was still to be like, whoa, this revelation that like Cubans existed back in New York in 1860s, like or 1830s or whenever it was exactly like that. Of course they did, but it's just not something you hear about or think about a lot. And that it was such a brief little shred of history. And and what we do when we can't get the rest of the story, because usually of oppression, is we start to allow our imaginations to take over. So I asked myself, what what if one of these girls had escaped out into the city? What if... You know, what if she was an amazing pterodactyl (laughs) rider? Like, you know, (laughs) questions start to come. And then you so because that was the seed of, of Dactyl Hill Squad, it immediately was kind of birthed as a middle grade.
0: And so just to let people know, because I did not I haven't said about what Dr. Hill Squad is about. Right. So it it takes place in eighteen sixty-three. Correct. And dinosaurs roam the streets of New York. So Mm -hmm. it's as if dinosaurs never went extinct. This is during the Civil War. Exactly. And the main character, Magdalise, correct. Correct. Said it right. Good Uh, job. Specifically says that in there that it's Magdalise Roca. Mm-hmm. Um, and her friends—they're yeah. from the Colored orf- Colored Orphan Asylum—and right. they go on this field trip. Draft riots break out, right. and a bunch of their friends get kidnapped. Yes, and so it is a, a story about them kind of fighting human trafficking and going against slavery, and all, there's all of these issues in there. But it's really just like a fun, also a fun action story of kids. Riding around on dinosaurs and, like, fighting things. Um, So the kids flee to Dactyl Hill, which is why it's called Dactyl Hill Squad. It's in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of their safe place. Yeah. And they they do their missions and things out of there. That was an excellent summary. (laughs) Thank you. And so the question is, why... Did you pair dinosaurs with the Civil War? <laughs> Was there like a thing? I know you said you were doing the research and you found that. Sure. But then like, okay, let's throw dinosaurs in here.
1: <laughs> right. That's a really good question. And I still don't have a satisfactory answer, which is weird because that's the question I always get asked. <laughs> Reasonably so. <laughs> right. Um, the sort of easy answer is that I'm a fantasy writer. So that everything, when I when my creativity clicks on is when I start to put that fantasy um, filter over things, right? So I had a lot of information in my head about the Civil War era and the Civil War itself and New York in particular in that time because of this other research I'd done um, back when I was kind of doing more music. And it was this rock opera, and I kept going with that. So I had all this information in my head, and then I became a writer exactly 10 years ago this month.
0: Oh, good for you. Thank Congratulations. May.
1: It's sort of my writer birthday, I guess. And <laughs> nice. I'm a Capricorn. My actual birthday is on Friday. Oh. Happy birthday. It's exciting. Um, So anyway, I had all this information, and I think my brain needed something to do with it now that I was a writer. And I'm not a fantasy writer just because I want to be a fantasy writer. I'm a fantasy writer because that's how my brain works, you know, (laughs) and I want to be a fantasy writer. Thank God. (laughs) Um, So I I think there was also a part of me that was like, I'm not a historian, and I'm not that interested in writing a straight history, historical novel, um, just because that doesn't excite me. And because I didn't want to get this is where it's ironic. I didn't want to get caught up in like having to be too kind of the word I wanna say is fastooned, but I might have made that up. Is that a word? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. I, didn't get, I didn't want to get I didn't wanna get tied down um by a harpoon to like the actual facts of history because I wanted to be able to let the story kind of roam free. Um, what's ironic is that I ended up really falling in love with the historical part, even more so than the fantasy part. And so the book is extremely historical, yeah. um, like very deeply ingrained in history and in, you know, just things that were really happening. And part of that is because the stories don't get told. There's so many stories of especially heroism by people of color in that era, you know, doing amazing things and fighting for freedom, their own freedom and other people's freedom. That completely just, that white supremacy is basically knocked out of the history books yeah. um, and doesn't find interesting enough to make movies about or tell stories of. And that's a lot of the project of Dactyl Hill Squad is to find those stories and, and celebrate them and, and bring them to the surface.
0: And I learned a lot from Dactyl Hill Squad, too, because Good. I didn't know about that. Uh, like you said, these stories don't get right. told. So I didn't really know that there was a guy named David Ruggles, right. who was this amazing activist during Civil War in New York. Uh, and one of your characters is based off of him. And so right. I did I did also read, there's um, a glossary in the back of this book that yes. goes over all the history, which is how I know that, because I right. read that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was um, key, because I needed people yeah, to be able to, walk really away cool with to that. But that was really yeah. cool to
0: see, like, oh, yeah, these... this actually happened in a way. Obviously, there weren't dinosaurs, but right. a lot of these things, a lot of these people were real. Yeah. Um, there was a real kidnapping squad. Club, uh, yeah. Club, that's yeah. what it was. They really club. called themselves that. And that's, it was, it's it's really ridiculous. It is. It so, is. Um, so, addressing all these issues like human trafficking mm-hmm. and slavery and all these things that are racism that mm-hmm. are really wrapped up in this story, did, because you were writing for middle grade, did You have to think about those issues in a different way or because it's you make them so accessible in this book. So I'm just wondering how that happened for you, if it was if it just kind of came out or if you had to think about it differently because you were writing for younger kids.
1: Yeah, um, it is a really delicate balance, I would say, no matter who you're writing for. I think younger kids are especially vulnerable, Um, but not traumatizing my readers is a high priority for me. Um, no matter who I'm writing for. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated, right? Because it's all you're always weighing the balance between telling the truth about the world and not really damaging people or, or further damaging people, you know, mm-hmm. because the world is very damaging. <laughs> um, and and I don't know the answer. You know, I think it's really book by book and story by story because I don't think we can sugarcoat things. And I know as a reader, and especially kids have very high BS meters, you know, right. And but everybody does too. You know when you're being lied to. And that's the last thing you ever want a book to do. And that's the last thing I ever want my books to do is lie to someone. So you immediately break the trust the second you start to sugarcoat things, you know. At the same time, again, you can't just like, you know, you don't want the reading experience to be miserable. Right. (laughs) Um, So it is really hard. And it was very, just very on my mind. And I was in deep conversation with my editors and with beta readers, you know, about that throughout the process, both about the trauma of... The institutional violence that was happening at the time, and also the really difficult question. I don't know if you noticed, but in the end of the book, there's a note on gun violence. Yes. Um, and that was really complicated because here are characters who, here's a time when a war is being waged to end slavery, right? Even if it's not actually being waged to, to end slavery, it's a war that will end slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's so many levels of this question of militancy and freedom that we don't um, always engage very deeply with anymore or as much, I should say, um, just because of the times we live in are very, very different, even though there are lots of echoes of those times, especially right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always think about Malcolm X talking about, you know, it's, he doesn't consider it violence when it's self-defense. It's, it's, just what you have to do to survive, right? Right. And and I think that's a fascinating quote for us to grapple with, especially as children's book writers. Um, Because I grew up watching very violent shows, you know, and and rooting on violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that can be problematic, but I also think it's a part of, you know, how we come up. And I wonder, like, do the the message of pacifism kind of seems to always fall um, somewhat as a sledgehammer on kids of color. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder, like, how do we have these difficult conversations about freedom and about how to get free um, when there's actually violence being inflicted on our bodies when we try to get free and we're not supposed to fight back? Right. Again, I don't have the answers. I just know those are questions we need to be asking. And those were things that were on my mind very heavily as I was writing, as I continue to write Dr. Hill Squad.
0: Yeah. And the... and even though it takes place during the Civil War, it all seemed super relevant still, which is sad. Very sad. Um, but also, you know, it just kind of is what it is as well because yeah. a lot of the issues, you know, I mean, people would argue that there are kidnapping clubs of a sort still. Oh, there are. Um, yeah, so, absolutely are. You know, and so how much does... Do current events influence, or or do they influence, I, I assume they influence what you're thinking about, but right. do they influence, does that come out in your writing?
1: Um, yes and no, in the sense that it's, I'm very engaged with the world, um, maybe even addicted to the news a little bit, you know, to an unhealthy level, <laughs> um, just because I was raised a news junkie, you know, in a family of, of politics people that love, that just are fascinated and love politics. So I'm always up in it, Um, so I think it's always seeping into what I do, whether I want it to or not, Mm -hmm. but then it also becomes a question of consciously, like, how do you strategically bring it into the work without being overbearing, without making it too obvious, because I get annoyed when a piece clearly, like, overplays that card and tips its hat too far, and it's like, okay, we get it, like, that shit is still relevant. Can I say shit? Yes, I think so. It's not that yes. word, yeah, I think right. that's fine. <laughs> um, like we get it, you know. Uh, yeah. um, on the other hand, like I, it's also it's again it's a question of balance, right? Because you don't want to work to be talking about all this stuff and seemingly have no concept that it's actually engaging with things that are happening today. Um, so how do you do it? You a lot of it is instinct. So for me, you know, and and again, every book is going to be different. Um, but definitely. You're letting the story kind of guide the parameters of how it wants to be told, and you're, you're really trying to engage with it as you're writing on that level, all the while thinking of what you know, what is your readership, how is your readership going to be moving with it mm-hmm. as you go? And again, how do you not traumatize them, but how do you keep them awake? And not in terms of like the story being boring, because it's an exciting story no matter what, but how do you make art into a wake-up call and not a lullaby?
0: That's really good. I like that a lot because it's true. <laughs> Another thing, kind of a theme that I have noticed in mm-hmm. your writing, at least in your YA and uh, in this book, in your mm-hmm. middle grade, is the adults in your stories tend to be really supportive, but not only supportive they let the younger people take the lead. Right. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm just wondering if that's conscious, if you do that consciously, and if you think that's an, why you think that's important, I guess, to show adults kind of saying, like, especially in Dactyl Hill Squad, they're just like, we're going to they let the kids plan. They like <laughs> kind of go with the plan that the right. kids make. Right. I mean, they they do teach them and guide them but Mm -hmm. you know they do let them take the lead so
1: right um, no definitely i mean a lot of that is simply because it's it's a kid's book so if the kids aren't taking the lead it's just not it's barely gonna be a kid's book anymore and then it's sort of not sure what it is right because it looks and feels like a kid's book but it's adults running the show and kids you know they might want to read about it but we need to be telling stories about young people taking their future into their own hands i think Mm -hmm. um even if sometimes it pushes the realm of credulity credulity no Credulity? Credulity. What we will believe.
0: Yes. (laughs) Um,
1: I'm a writer, Uh, if you could believe it. Um, Even if it pushes that a little bit, because I don't, you know, well, and there's levels to this, right? Like nowadays, it's sort of ridiculous to think that an adult would be like, yeah, come on, let's go fight these bad guys together. But actually back then there were child soldiers in the Civil War on both sides, Mm -hmm. you know, which is something we have to think very deeply about as we lionize the Union Army and, and and everything that happened, you know, uh, which, which we should, but with a complexity, you know, not not simply these these are the good guys. And right. that's that comes back to a lot of what this book is about, is, is trying to get a more complicated look at what was happening in the North in terms of racism um, as this huge event was happening. But, yeah, I think, um, you know, also in Shadow Shaper, right? Like, it's amazing to have adults in the community who look out for us. Mm-hmm. And, and I always have. Um, And so it's something that really matters to me. It's not something I always see in books and something I miss when I don't see it. It matters, you know, that that we have multi-age, multi-generational communities gathering together and fighting for freedom in different ways and that we can learn from our elders and also that we can see that there's ways that they have messed up. And, and the best ones will be honest with us about it, just like the best of us will be honest about it with the younger people, you know, that are coming up about ways that we've messed up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a vision for organizing and for the future and the present that I try to bring to the books. As
0: much yeah, because that's a, the other thing is community is very yeah. heavy yeah. in pretty much everything that you write. Yes. And that really comes comes out. You know, if you if you read a lot of Daniel's work, you'll see that like community is pretty much in everything, no matter what the age group you're writing for. So obviously that's important to you.
1: It is. I think community saves our lives, you know, more often than not, but doesn't get the credit. And I think um, white Western literature has gotten and has historically been very obsessed with the one and only, you know, the individual, the rugged individual, all that BS. And it's really amazing to see as um, writers, as literature, as the bookshelf becomes more diverse, you know, as we see more honest reflections of who we are and, and more representation among authors, that, that things like that, tropes like that are being broken down, you know. And, and as someone who's been a community organizer, you know, for more than a decade in different ways, that's always something that I bring to my work because I know the power of community. You know, I know what it means to have community have your back. And it matters. and sometimes those are online communities, you know sometimes they're the old-fashioned kind like on the block. and there are mm-hmm. lots of different ways of of community stepping in and and creating and recreating itself that we see you know all the time in real time. but I think it's such a ripe and rich territory to explore with story.
0: And that brings me to a question that yes. I'm interested in your answer to, which is why does representation matter? because it does matter. and the you know you're talking about how things are getting more diverse, we have more authors coming mm-hmm. out, and it's still not enough, in my opinion. Publishing sure. is getting a no, little better. Definitely, yeah. um, but we do have movements, um, like I think you're involved in the mm-hmm. We Need Diverse Books yeah. uh, movement. So, you know, why is it important that we have all these different representations?
1: <sighs> it's a big question. I know, I don't but... <laughs> even like that question. I'm done, I'm rejecting the question. <laughs> I only so, say that because it's, it, it seems self-explanatory, right? I mean, yeah. you know the answer, yes. right?
0: I think I do, yeah. You do. I
1: mean, because there isn't one simple answer, right? Right. It matters because it's true. Yeah. That's the easiest and most straightforward answer I know. It's like, it just matters because it's true, and literature's job is to tell the truth, and it's failed at that job for generations. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's as simple as that as well. And <laughs> yeah. what about... um So writers, I know a lot of writers listen to this, to this uh, program. And so a question about writing in general, because representation does matter when you're writing about people who are different from you and you wrote uh, an article, I think for BuzzFeed about the fundamentals of writing the other, Mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting. You wrote that a few years ago. So I wonder what, if anything has changed since then, Mm. or what do you think may be different now about trying to write people who aren't like you? Right. And when is it your story to tell versus when you should allow people to tell right. their own stories that or different is a, stories? That's a
1: great question. I, there are no easy answers to that, <laughs> right? I think the first line of that piece is that we're always writing ourselves and we're always writing the other. Mm-hmm. And that that remains true. I think the industry is transforming before our eyes. I think, um, you know, literature itself is transforming because of the organizing work of a lot of mostly women of color writers, which is amazing mm-hmm. um, and brave. And that's incredible to see. And and so here we are, right? And I think it's like these are just ongoing questions that we have to constantly be in dialogue with. You, you're you not ever going to write a book that doesn't have the self and the other in it. And And I don't mean like there's a character that's exactly your demographic and there's a character that's not. I mean, when you're writing a character that's not exactly your demographic, you're still writing yourself because you're writing your impressions of them and you know, the more that we try to protect ourselves and try to sort of dip and dodge around really understanding who we are in the equation and what power we have and don't have, the more we get into the mire of all kinds of messy, you know, bullshit that 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 um, doesn't tell the truth. Right. And that's, that's our job at the end of the day. And it's an imperfect thing. You know, I don't think there's like a, a, a single thing that's the truth and you fit it into a small box. I think, there's things that are going to feel more and less like the truth throughout the course of a character, throughout the course of a narrative, and we're always in conversation with that, and we're always doing our best to be real about that as much as we can. And what that means, you know, is that we are engaging with the soul, with our own souls. And that's why it's not an easy question. People, And, and it's a good question um, because it's not an easy question, but I think people tend to want simple answers. How many times have writers of color been on panels where someone asked for permission. Right. You know, which I know you weren't doing. Um, but but that's a question we get a lot, right? Like, yeah. can I write the other? And we're like, sure. you know, you can't not write the other. Right. But like what you, that's not what you're really asking. What you're really asking is, can I have your permission, Cuban, to write, you know, a Cuban character and so that I can then go say this Cuban said I could write this character. Right. Never mind how complex that singular national identity is, which is, you know, and cultural identity, which is extraordinarily complex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what it means is the more that we reject simplifications, and and by simplifications, I include like the weirdness of asking permission from writers of color, <laughs> um, and the more that we allow ourselves to go deep and be deep in conversation with ourselves and with others, the better we listen, which is one of the hardest things to do, one of the least discussed skills of being a writer, whether it's, you know straightforward craft or this complex question of culture and ethnicity and race um the more we hone those skills I think the better we approach the page with more with more of our own humanity and therefore more of the characters' humanity too
0: yeah and um and the things that I you know I've of course been to like a million, panels and conferences and mm-hmm. things everywhere. And and it does always come <laughs> up, it seems like, everywhere, right. even still. And, you know, it's, it's kind of why I asked that question, too, because yeah. it's like, this comes up everywhere it's all an important the time. Question. And you're right that people are asking permission a lot. Right. And that's the wrong, the wrong question or the wrong way to approach <laughs> right. it. It's like, right. well, no, um... But it is it is complex, and it is something that I think writers should be thinking about when yeah. they're writing,
1: yeah. at least. Yeah.
0: So what is up next for you? I know you said there's another... Uh, Dr. Hill Squad is a series, so there'll be another one in there.
1: Book two comes out May 14th. Oh,
0: Freedom I didn't know that fired. it was coming out in May. Yeah, That's comes out really in May. Exciting. It's done.
1: It's in the bag. <laughs> I know. I'm really excited about it. And book three probably comes out in next year.
0: Okay, yeah. cool. And then you said you had... The other middle grade, eventually, maybe. Yeah, I have no out. idea
1: when it'll come out, but it will come out <laughs> it will whenever be a I, thing. whenever I'm done with Dactyl Hill, I guess it'll come out. And are you working on cool. anything else? Yes. So, book the book of Lost Saints comes out November 5th. That is um, my first standalone adult novel. That's not a Star Wars novel, if that <laughs> makes sense. Because I have an adult series, right? The Bone Street Roomba. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a noir thriller. Story in the same world as Shadow Shaper. But Mm -hmm. The Book of Lost Saints is a standalone adult novel. Um, It's not a thriller. It's not genre at all. It is narrated by spirit, um, but it's not like a murder mystery. You know, Mm -hmm. it's um, about a woman who disappeared during the Cuban Revolution and shows up in modern-day New Jersey in 2004 watching over her nephew, who's a um, hospital security guard and a DJ. And she kind of goads him by... um, possessing his dreams and giving him her memories of her life and his dreams to go and find out what happened to her in Cuba.
0: Oh, that sounds really exciting. I'm excited to read it. Do you know when that's coming out?
1: November 5th.
0: Ah, so you have two books coming out this year. I do. That is exciting. Is exciting. <laughs> and where can people find you if they want more information
1: online? Um, my website is uh, danieljoseolder.net, and I'm on Twitter, talking a lot of trash, at, at DJ Older.
0: Lots of stuff on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I tweet a <laughs> lot, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I have opinions about things. So, yeah, but but uh, all my books are available on my website, danielhoseolder.net.
0: And you'll also be at the Dogfish Reading Series later this month yes, on the on 24th. Thursday
1: the 24th with Lady Hubbard. I'm very excited about it.
0: Yes, that's going to be awesome. It is at 2448 North Villery Street. And uh, Daniel and Lady Hubbard, who is the author of The Talented Ribkins, is her book, uh, will both be there. So come and check it out, 7 p.m., Thursday, January 24th. Ooh, and ooh. Tubby and Coos will be there to sell books Excellent. as well. Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I Thanks for having much me. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it I was tons it. of fun. Yes. That was Daniel Jose Older, author of Dactyl Hill Squad, the Bone Street Rumba Urban Fantasy Series, Star Wars Last Shot, and The Shadow Shaper Cipher. That's our show. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and again on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This show, along with WRBH's other interview programs from the week, will be archived on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm Candace Huber. Until next time.